Hey everyone, thanks for coming back to Real Leaders Podcast. I'm Sue Heilbronner, your host, you know me, and you also know that Real Leaders is this podcast that brings you the story behind the story of some of the most authentic, innovative leaders I know. Before we jump into this week's episode, I just have that one ask again. If you like this show, if you listen to them and you've listened to others, if you've told someone about this show, please tell iTunes about this show. Go to iTunes and rate this show, please. Just search for Real Leaders in your podcast menu and you'll see the review tab and a chance to leave a review. Now, we're joined by Nicole Gleros. As of yesterday, she has a new title. So like, you're the first to know. She's the, or probably not first, maybe <laughs> actually, like the 176. No, actually, well, they pretty much are. I mean, I literally, I think I changed the LinkedIn title maybe 20 minutes ago. Oh, that's awesome. So. Okay. <laughs> so she's the chief innovation officer at Techstars and somebody who I've had the privilege of knowing since I moved to Boulder six years ago. So this is Nicole Galeros. Thank you for joining us. Thanks so much for having me, Sue. So, Nicole, the way we start out this podcast is we ask all of our guests to give us their three-minute life story. And I know yours is going to be good, so go. Oh, my gosh. My three-minute life story. Uh, Something that's relevant about me is that I come from a background of immigrants. My parents are first-generation American, but my grandparents actually came here from Greece, and I'm 100% Greek, and we like to call that pedigree. But they all came here on boats because they wanted to make a better life for themselves. So when I was growing up... I really heard a lot about being independent and creating your own life and um, being in charge of your own destiny and changing your situations to match the life that you want. And they weren't just, you know, giving me hokey pokey. They lived that, right? They left everything that they knew with no money and came to a foreign country without even speaking the language and not knowing anybody. So I grew up hearing that. And my grandfather was an entrepreneur. My father is an entrepreneur. And I also grew up as understanding that entrepreneurship was a little bit of the way to create your own reality. And that's kind of how I got started, really. When I was in college, I started a company with my father called PropertyManagementShop.com. And we ended up creating an online retailer for the property management industry. That was the sort of my first real foray into entrepreneurship. I had done small little projects before that, but that was the first real one. And I remember using the ATM as the funding source of the business. I would take my credit card to the ATM, pull out $500 in cash every day, which was my limit. I would use that to pay the software engineers that were working with us. And and, um, and then I would take the sales out at the end of the week and pay off my credit card. And that was how I like literally with my dad funded our first business. I tried a couple more startups after that and they were both uh, miserable, expensive failures. And I basically blew through all of the earnings I had made on the first business on the second two. And that's where I really learned the value of mentorship. My dad was a mentor and a partner to me in the first business. I didn't have that in the next couple. That was a really harsh lesson for me, but that was how I got interested in sort of this mentorship angle. So at that time, then I found myself broke and in need of a job. And I found an organization that was called Boulder Technology Incubator or CTEC. And there was a woman by the name of Lou Cordova who ran the organization. I heard her speak and I thought, wow, like I want to start another company, but I don't have the capital. I'm nervous now because I'm afraid I'm going to have a third failure. So let me see if I can work for this organization that was an incubator. And plus this woman seems outstanding. And I stalked her until she gave me a job and she will validate that I literally stalked her until she said yes. And uh, and then I was there for about five years where we helped, well, we grow that office from one office in Boulder to about five across the state and organized Colorado's first organized angel investor network, which was called CTEC Angels. 
that's how I met David Cohen and Brad Feld. And then I was an early person at a company called Solidware here in um, Boulder under a woman by the name of Sue Hawk. And that company sold about 12 months after I joined. And um, after that, I wasn't sure what I wanted to do next. And starting a company was on my radar. David Cohen had said, hey, while, while you're figuring out what you want to do next, why don't you come hang out with me at Techstars? And that was in 2008. I've been with Techstars ever since. Okay, so that's the work thing. Just for people who may not know you, you also have a personal life and a family, yep. right? Yep. So I have a husband. We've just celebrated our 10-year wedding anniversary. Nice. And I have a um, six-and-a-half-year-old daughter and a son that just turned five like two days ago. Oh, those are fun ages. Yeah. Uh, those are the ages when I get involved, by the way, like the baby, anything five <laughs> and under, not interesting, you know, because I'm not a parent, so I have that kind of discretion. <laughs> so thanks for that, Nicole. Now, the first thing you did, well, the first chunk of thing you did was to be the managing director of Techstars Boulder, mm-hmm. which at that time was Techstars, right? Yep. There was one accelerator. That's right. Tell me about what you loved about that job of heading up an accelerator and what just didn't work for you. I loved almost everything about it, actually. I didn't see it as an accelerator. I really saw it as a a really tight-knit family, almost, of people that were driven by a single purpose, which was to help entrepreneurs become successful. Because we had so many mentors that were literally volunteering and donating their time, it was confusing to me at first why they were doing that. But when I dug in and I understood that Um, they actually get as much out of it as they put into it. I began to realize that that ecosystem, that family is, is like any family, right? Everybody benefits and works really well when everybody's benefiting. And it doesn't work really well when everybody's not. So one of the very first things I tried to do is understand how to make sure that everybody that was participating got something out of it. I also really wanted to make sure that everybody was open and honest with each other because that was how we could get to make sure that everybody was benefiting. And, And when they're hidden agendas and hidden issues, then it becomes complex, right? And I I like things to be simple. So my first job was just making sure everybody had the same focus and was trying to accomplish the same goal and was really to help these early stage entrepreneurs. I loved meeting companies. I loved diving into their businesses. I loved hearing the mentors coach the companies. I loved creating that sense of family around them. I loved working through the hard people problems that that often created. I loved making the investment decisions on those companies. I think the thing that I hated the worst was the day that I had to tell 990 companies no. Mm-hmm. Actually, the first time I did it, I I called people. Wow. And then I very quickly realized I wasn't going to be able to make all the phone calls because every single call took me somewhere between two and three hours of explaining <laughs> why. And it usually has resulted in me and the entrepreneur crying. And I realized I wasn't going to be able to get through everybody. So I quickly from there went to emailing people. But I, I, I used to hate that day and was just letting people down and trying to explain to them that no, it's not that your your baby is ugly, but that it's not it's just not a good fit with what we have to offer. And that was really hard to get across, and it was emotionally draining for me. Hmm. Um, but that was probably the worst part. And the rest of it was, I mean, the workload was intense. The workload is intense, but uh, it's so incredibly rewarding when you watch people achieve great things, when you watch people stumble and fall and then get up. When you watch people really align and supporting each other and helping each other, like that's all incredibly motivating to me. And um, every day was a new challenge and was fun. So you've been actively mentoring companies, startups for at least eight years, right? Yeah, it's more than that. I've, I started at, at CTEC, so that was 2002-ish. Great. Okay. Yeah. So well, that's way longer. Yeah. So 
What do you think has changed most about your approach in serving as a mentor, either formal or informal, with some of these young companies? Oh, that's great. Um, I think in the early days, I was so, I, I had a desire to know everything. And I wanted to be seen as knowledgeable and um, and intelligent. And what I what I really learned in working with all of the people that I've learned that I've worked with is that there's no way you're going to be the smartest, most knowledgeable thing about any topic. There just isn't like it's not possible. There's always somebody smarter and better than you. So what I learned was to really listen to what the entrepreneur was struggling with, really try to pick apart because often they don't know what they're struggling with. They'll point to revenue problems or they'll point to marketing problems or whatever, but that's usually not at the core of it. So really listening to what the problems are and then running around and trying to help them find the best person that I know to solve those problems. And sometimes that's me, but usually it's somebody else. And the thing that I am good at is really sussing out what's actually happening and I can help the entrepreneur put it in words that they can then seek out the right help and then help the mentor or the person that's going to sit with them hear the real problem, not the way the entrepreneur phrases it, but in a different way. So it's just, I would say, the creating real visibility into what's actually going on is probably what I'm good at. And the thing that changed is me embracing the fact that there's no way I'm going to be the best at any of this, but that I can find the best person. And if I can leverage those people, that's powerful. You are really good at that. I mean, that's a really accurate statement of something uniquely powerful about you. And the great thing about it is it's not really content related. It's just related to seeing what's there and being a great listener. And I just see you do that again and again. You're also incredibly fast. Oh, and I you. think that's tremendous value in the work that you do. And we'll talk a little more about your post-accelerator life, but I want to stay with that for a second. So I just want to throw something out here. One thing that I feel like I've observed about you is first you're a really challenging i don't mean you're a challenging person to deal with like you know a oh kid i hear in that school, but well yeah, <laughs> I, hear that. I mean i don't i don't see that as much but i find you to be one who routinely challenges that that's sort of one of your key jobs in the world i experience you doing it a little bit differently than you did even five or six years ago hmm. when i first saw you how do you experience me doing it differently it just you feel way more relaxed to me oh it feels like there's more space around you. It just feels a little bit less sharp and a little more playful, actually, <laughs> and funnier. This sounds ridiculous, but there's just more love in how you offer support and challenge to entrepreneurs. I see it that way. Now, that could be a colossal projection. In fact, yeah. I hope it is. But, uh, <laughs> but do you see that? Um, I don't know that I see it that clearly. I mean, I can tell you that I did used to hear that I was very abrasive. And in the abrasiveness, I would put people on defensive. And that was never my goal. My goal was always, it, it wasn't even to be abrasive. My goal was like, I, I, I do process things very quickly. And we also had very little time. So my goal is to get to the meat of something quickly. And I don't need pleasantries to do it, right? But I did come to realize that that's not everybody's way. And the very first thing that you need to do is establish trust. So that became a focus, is establishing trust as quickly as possible so people could understand that the feedback that I was giving, even though it may be harsh, it comes from a place of love and support, not from a place of criticism and judgment. And it did take me a while to learn that, right? So when I learned that, I would say that 
my professional career probably did take a step forward and people really understand. And now a lot of times what I'll do, in fact, I was just at a conference in um, in Paris. It was a pitch judging conference where we were supposed to give feedback to these entrepreneurs and they're very early entrepreneurs. And I literally started every single one with, so I want you to know that our job here is to help you get better. Mm-hmm. And it isn't to, it's not to criticize you and it's not to tear you down and it's not to judge you. It's to give you feedback that is going to help you get better telling you good job is not going to help you get better. We're going to focus on the things that are not good. And by focusing on the things that are not good, that will help you get better. And when you position things that way, you immediately start with trust. So I think maybe that's what you're picking up on. What I notice about that sort of preamble is it's also a reminder to you. Well, it's a reminder to the people that I'm with. Oh, that's true too, to your other people on your panel. Yeah, because I know that. Yeah, The entrepreneur doesn't know that. And the people here sometimes, the people that are the judges often, I mean, you've been on judging panels, you know that there tends to be a competition to see who can say the smartest, wittiest, most insightful thing, right? Trying to get away from that and into, let's really help this founder is really important stage setting for everybody. I mean, I view this as a continuum. It's not like one day you realize that that was something you wanted to do more of. I'm sure that's been evolving over the course of your life. But did you come to that on your own or did you have help? No, I didn't have help. I did come to it on my own, but it it came to me through pieces of negative feedback about my delivery style, which was you're really abrasive, you're harsh, you know, you put people on the defensive. And my response was always, well, that's not my intention. Well, what, what is your intention? Well, my intention is to help. Well, if your intention is to help, then like say that. Right. And sometimes it's just that simple. It's like when you talk about what your intentions are, it levels the field. It's that hidden agenda thing, right? When there aren't hidden agendas, when everybody knows what's going on, then people can operate more safely. And when they feel safer, they're willing to take greater risk. Sure. So like, yeah, I didn't have help coming to that conclusion. That was just it came through negative feedback that I was getting and trying to figure out how to get over that negative feedback. That's great. It's really, it really shows. It really shows. And I've admired you either way because I like you <laughs> abrasive too. It's sort of entertaining, but, um, but that's just my personal appreciation. Are there still times where you feel like you kind of skid a little off the rails on that one and are able to catch yourself or don't catch yourself? And if that ever happens, what do you think leads you to that? Um, I think I get off the rails all the time. I think we all get off the rails all the time. And I think it's a constant effort to keep yourself on the rails. I think it takes a lot of introspection. In fact, we just had an issue recently where I was like, wow, I handled that really badly. And in some cases, you can rectify it. You can go to the person or the situation and say, hey, listen, like I messed up. And in retrospect, this is what I should have done, and I'm sorry. And then there are cases where you can't do that. You know, I think that part of growing as an individual is becoming self-aware of those things and really looking at situations and saying, is that how I wanted to handle it? Is that how I wanted to conduct myself? It's not necessarily about the outcome because you don't know the outcome, but can you look at yourself in the mirror and say that you handled that the best way? And You know, I'd like to say that most times the answer is yes, but I would say there are lots of times the answer is no. And I try to rectify it when I can, and sometimes I can't. I've heard you say many times that one of the ways you pick investments or companies that you'd like to see be part of one of the Techstars programs, that team is just the most important thing. You say that routinely, and I think that's almost become kind of a meme that everyone says that. I actually think when you say it, you really mean it. I, I see you do that also. When you look at 
teams and what leads to success and failure of teams, the data I know is very high that team conflicts create a lot of the failures in companies. But sometimes I wonder about sort of the intrinsic conflicts that happen inside an individual, even before you get to how that person interacts with his or her co-founder. How do you think about the importance of just how stable or how self-aware an entrepreneur is before you make an investment? I I think, actually, I think self-awareness is a huge quality that we look for. Um, people that are that are self-critical, that that are always evaluating what they're doing and how they're doing it, and trying to improve. This trait of constant self-improvement is a really important one in entrepreneurs. You build your whole company around that, basically, and the whole company will look to you to to how are they self-improving? How is a company improving? If the founder can't do that, then the company won't ever do it. I do look at that. And then the other thing that I really look at too, though, is the relationship between the founders. And I look really closely at how they talk to each other because you can see a lot, especially when they disagree. In fact, I feel like I can talk about this now because I'm not doing the selection for Boulder anymore. But one of the things I will try to do is incite an argument (laughs) between the founders because what I want to know is, I don't, like actually if they do fight, that tells me something. That tells me that they're comfortable enough with themselves that they're willing to argue in front of me. Not argue is the wrong word. I would say disagree right. in front of me. And that says they have a lot of confidence in their in themselves. But how they argue, are they, dis, are they dismissive of each other? Do they get inquisitive of why the other person disagrees? Do they really take note? Do they really push back and fight or to become argumentative? Like those little traits will dictate how the entire company acts and how they handle conflict. The, all founders and all companies have conflict. It's how they handle the conflict that matters. So when you see two founders that don't agree with each other and they handle it in a respectful, open way, tell me why you think that way. I have this perspective. Now that you have my perspective, do you still disagree with that? When when you hear them having a conversation over it rather than a, a blown out argument, it's like a gigantic green check. Yep, these guys can handle almost any fight and any conflict that comes their way in a constructive way rather than a destructive way. Okay, so this is just one, just a slight interjection for those of you listening, anyone seeking an investment from the Techstars Fund, (laughs) you now know that when you meet with Nicole, you should actually have a fight and you should handle it expertly. It's just the kind of inside information we like to deliver on this podcast. So Nicole, you moved on from being the MD here in Boulder and what's your new job? So my job today is the Chief Innovation Officer. So we're really really good at running accelerator programs and I think we're it's time for us to start thinking beyond the accelerator so what other things can we do to help this ecosystem really grow and flourish and that's my new charter will you continue to be doing company selection for the fund I help I ha- will help all programs in selection I I mean, I've just done so many of them that I get called into probably about a third of our selection and screening committees for the programs so absolutely in fact it's one of the things that I love to do but my sort of future charter is what's next for Techstars and in the course of transitioning from the role that you had in the Techstars Fund uh, into this new role, you shed some direct reports, and that was something you did intentionally. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah. So as I was previously, I was chief product officer, and um, as chief product officer, I oversaw all of our accelerators, including Startup Week, Startup Weekend. So I think in terms of personnel, that represented something like forty percent of the company. And I honestly, management is not my happy place. 
it's funny too because people look at me like I'm crazy. My happy place is sort of managing no one, is like no direct reports and being able to be creative and strategize and problem solve and come up with new things is is where I'm happiest. The old role was meant to be that, but we, I don't know, we got off the rails. So we corrected it. I know you're working on the future of tech stars. What are your latest opinions on the future of accelerators? Yeah, so I mean, I I wish I could tell you that I think that all accelerators are awesome and that they will be successful, but I just don't believe that that's true. I do think that there are a handful of accelerators out there that are awesome and that they really, really help companies, but I think probably a vast majority of them don't. And and there are a bunch of reasons for that, right? First of all, they don't necessarily have the network of expertise. Like you'll get a person that runs the accelerator that thinks that they know all the answers. And to my previous point, you don't. Right. So learning how to tap a mentor network of people that are really willing to help and get ego out of the way, I think is a big part of it. I think another big part of it is having entrepreneurs run accelerators. And in many cases, entrepreneurs don't run accelerators. You have investors that run them or you have government officials or, or, you know, corporates that don't know actually the first thing about being an entrepreneur. It's not that their advice is bad. It's that their advice is irrelevant (laughs) to the startup. Right, they have a very different perspective on how to run a company, which has doesn't have anything to do with when you're two or three people and no budget. I think there are a handful of accelerators out there that get it, and those that do get it, I think they're greatly beneficial to the companies. The ones that don't actually think are damaging. The first best outcome to a startup is success, of course. The second best outcome is quick failure. Mm. And when we prolong the life of these companies that just really should not be around, it actually doesn't help anybody. It wastes investors' money, it wastes the entrepreneur's life. It's actually one of the reasons why Techstars did spin out the Global Accelerator Network to try to help as many accelerators out there as possible, give them best practices. So we are making sure that startups are getting the support they need. But I think of you know there's something like over 3,000 accelerators now, and I think the vast majority of them don't get it. One of the things that Techstars really rests on is this idea of a mentor-driven program. That, that, that That's really the be-all, end-all. You guys say it this way. I know there's a lot going on that doesn't involve the mentors as a mentor, but I'm starting to feel like this word mentor, sort of like the word accelerator, yep. is actually losing its value. And sort of like the word, yeah, like team first. Yeah, yeah. right. Like it's that. True. So this is really bugging me. It's actually not yeah. something you could talk to about too much or too loudly, although I guess we are here because it sounds a little cynical. But that's sort of like you intending to be helpful. Like, I'm intending to be helpful here, too. Right. How do entrepreneurs know when someone who is being held out as a mentor is really someone they should view as a mentor? So um, I actually love talking about this. And because I think it's something that a lot of uh, accelerators out there get wrong. The best mentor-mentee match is one that is made between the mentor and the mentee. It is a chemical connection, an emotional connection between the mentor and the mentee. It is not an assignment. A mentor does not come and mentor companies at Techstars because we tell them to. They come and mentor companies at Techstars because they find a company that they love and that they want to help and that they want to see succeed. We are just a catalyst and a platform for them to find companies like that. Like, you know, we we do the screening. But I often tell mentors, like your best outcome is finding one company to go really deep on. Your second best outcome is none. 
Because if you don't fall in love with the founders and you don't fall in love with what they're doing, you're not going to be a great mentor. I'm not assigning you a company. You have to find one that you connect with on an emotional level. And most accelerator programs out there don't get that. That is how a mentee knows that they found a great mentor. Okay, I agree with that. I think that's true, but I think that bypasses a critical phase of how this little Hmm. relationship gets teed up, which is there's a vetting of the mentors in the first place to even be considered. Now, of course, anyone can mentor anyone, right? So leaving outside the parameters. You guys have loose parameters here at Techstars where the mentors meet the teams in various ways. What I'm concerned is is one an additional concern, and I love your points on this, people who are getting in and getting labeled as mentors without actually having entrepreneurial or non-entrepreneurial experience that could really create some kind of context for great advice. Oh, I, and and I the startups often don't know. Right. Yes, in, in that context, we do do a vetting, and we actually look really carefully at what's the thing that this person can be a great mentor on. It varies widely from everything from the top level company, like this person has been a CEO four times, to a really functional expert in like, I know how to game the Google SEO system really well, right? If we can't identify the person's strength, then you're right, what are they going to mentor at? And and we do encourage the companies to say like, here are the things that we think this person is strong at. Make sure you understand and you dive into what the things that you think they're strong at. And if they're coaching you on stuff that they're not strong at, take it with a grain of salt. We also then turn to the mentors and say, be careful not to mentor on things that you don't know anything about. It doesn't mean you can't have an opinion, but make sure you couch opinions with, hey, I don't know what I'm talking about here, but let me talk about what my gut is telling me, right? Because uh, oftentimes companies will see your word as gospel. So how do you do that outside of an ecosystem like Techstars where the companies and the mentors aren't getting the coaching and there's not vetting going on? It's just You just have to be careful. And as a mentee, you have to be really talking to somebody and you're trying to decide whether or not you really want to have a long-term relationship with them, make sure you get clarity on what their real strengths are. And it's also okay to ask for a mentor, hey, look, I'm a B2B company and you want me to go B2C. Do you have experience going from B2B to B2C company? Yeah, great. Just keep asking qualifying questions. Keep asking qualifying questions. It's okay. Yeah, that's that's a really great point. Okay, I want to change gears a little bit or a lot. Uh, So we're both women in sort of the tech startup ecosystem in the world. And I'm curious for you, how relevant is it to your identity that you're female? It's not at all. Mm-hmm. And it's um, it's actually been something I've been wrestling with because I historically haven't been part of a lot of the women's only groups. And and I've, I've kind of like peeked my head in and I'll attend a meeting here and attend a meeting there. And I don't find tremendous value in them because while I am a female, I don't identify myself as a female in tech. I just identify myself as in tech, right? So why do I need a different platform or place? That's not to say that I couldn't use coaching and I couldn't use help and professional development, right? But I've struggled with a lot of the groups because, you know, I I don't want to have the conversation about a woman in a man's world. Like that isn't a productive conversation to me. A productive conversation to me is, hey, Nicole, you certainly sound like you say I'm sorry a lot. Let's coach (laughs) getting rid of that verbiage out of your out of your dialect. Or, hey, Nicole, you really seem like you had something to say and you didn't say it. Why not? Like coaching me as an individual, not just as a female, but as an individual. 
So I have a magic formula for that sorry thing. I actually just shared it with a, a server. Sorry, not sorry. Arcana. No, it was at Arcana last night. So the rule is it's totally cool to say I'm sorry when you don't actually mean it and you're just apologizing for taking up space. But when you apologize that way, you just have to drop everything and do five pelvic thrusts, no matter where you are. <laughs> it just seems to totally address the issue, which is, is sort of magical. Okay, so I got that. And you know, you and I could talk just about that. But I I have this other thing that's been coming up for me. You know that I run this accelerator mm-hmm. that you've been very helpful with called Merge Lane, along with Elizabeth and uh, and Hannah. And we focus on companies that have at least one female in leadership. And I'm going to talk about something that I bet you have seen, which is we want to welcome into our fund and our accelerator. I feel scared saying this one out loud, too. Companies that are addressing really interesting problems. Mm-hmm. And... Because entrepreneurs tend to build companies around what they know and what also really, really resonates with them. And because it seems, and I'm not a parent, but it seems like motherhood is a really big deal. <laughs> and I think fatherhood's a really big deal too, but it doesn't seem like it's as big a deal. Right. And so I see a lot of companies that are created in part by women or entirely by women that are related to their personal experience of parenting. Like it's probably 40% of our applicant cohort Mm -hmm. at Merge Lane. And when I wonder about women in the funding disparity, one of the things I wonder about is, geez, oh Pete, are are women creating companies that are interesting enough to be fundable? And I'm curious if you have any thoughts on that. So I think that women can create businesses that are interesting enough. Um, But I do, so I would actually take a step back from that and say, why? Why do women create businesses around stuff that they know where men can create businesses around stuff that they don't know? I do this for a while where I would go, whenever this subject would come up, I would survey the room and I would say, okay, of all the men, like if you're a man, raise your hand. If you're a man and you've ever had a superhero dream, lower your hand. And usually like <laughs> everybody would lower their hand. There'd be like two guys that would keep their hand up that has never had a superhero dream. Then I would actually do the same with the women. I would ask the women the same thing. Raise your hand if you're female. Now now lower your hand if you've ever had a superhero dream. And like nobody, no women do. Like there's a couple, right? There are a handful. But there's something about this, I think, risk aversion I don't, I don't know maybe if you can draw it to risk aversion, but like a lot of women I see are tend to be a little bit more risk averse, right? So they're going to operate in spaces that they know really well because that's where they feel comfortable. Right. Yeah. And men, that, that is less of an issue for them, right? So the thing that I always tell people is it's not that women can't create businesses that are interesting, but it's that they create businesses in things that they feel are less risky to them and less risky is stuff that you know. So the, if, if you're a woman and you really want to be an entrepreneur, and of course, if you're dying to solve this problem, then go solve the problem about the whatever use, mother- Use strollers. Yeah, use strollers or, or like the wedding dress rental or like whatever yeah. it is, right? But my, my suggestion is, is to- Include men on your team, right? But then I tell the guys the same thing. Right. Listen, your business model in ad tech that you've never experienced, you know nothing about ad tech, why don't you go get some women on your team? And like the, that balance helps the women really get outside of their comfort zone to create things of big vision and big impact potential. And it also brings the guys down to earth a little bit that they can create very realistic businesses. So I can see it on both sides. 
Um, we tend to focus it on a little bit more in the women as criticism. We don't focus it on the men as criticism of creating uh, that's realistic. A great, that's a great point. Like creating unrealistic business things that just are not going to work. So if we can just bring those things together and call those elements of their personality strengths, and they, they will create a perfect whole when together. Yeah, so, yeah. I think that's a really great perspective. I mean, one of the things that I find so often and and I find I find it with male founders also. It just seems to come up more often with female founders. On the other hand, I, my sample set is totally biased on this front. Is you'll just see these extraordinary people with like unbelievable pedigrees, and they've almost made the Olympics in some crazy sport, and they've gotten straight A's everywhere, and they've done a million things and traveled and been an AmeriCorps volunteer, and they've done all these things, and the business that they elect to create. It's just, it's so disappointing to me. Yeah. <laughs> and and, and I, I feel like I ought not say, you're extraordinary. Why did you, why is this the problem? I mean, sometimes I say it. Do you say it? Yeah. So um, actually, we used to say that at Techstars a lot. And in fact, one of the things that we used to say frequently was, many of you are here in spite of your idea. <laughs> and really working with the company to try to get them on the right path. Now, the key is that they have to be operating in a market that's interesting. Because like, as long as the founders have potential and they are operating in a market that is interesting, usually you can get them on something, the business thing that's interesting. So if you don't think that used strollers is interesting, but the thing that that, that really talented woman is wanting to conquer is some problem in motherhood, great. You have a great team. You have incredible talent. Let's identify what the real opportunity in motherhood is and tackle that rather than use stroller borrowing. Right. Right. I'm going to change gears again. Thanks for that, by the way. It's fun. <laughs> I've never really had that conversation because I'm always afraid to have it. So you talked about the notion that you're being independent is something that you really came to honestly as a young person based on your parents and their history. And I see you as incredibly independent. How has independence not served you in your life? Oh, good question. Um, so I actually, I cannot answer this question and I can relate it to my mom a little bit. So it'll be interesting if my mom ever hears this podcast. My mom was an only child. And again, her parents came here on the boat, basically from Greece. And she's like raging independent and so much so that she just doesn't know how to accept help from people or ask for help. And it's really hard seeing somebody that you love when you want to help them and they just they push you away. And I've seen her do this a number of times in her life when she's, you know, like losing a parent and things like that, like places where she's needed help. I see myself doing that, not to the same degree as my mom, but definitely to a degree where the more help I need, the more I withdraw, the less I ask for help. And like I've noticed it about myself, I haven't yet figured out how to crack the cycle because when the times when I've felt like I've wanted to ask for help, I've, I haven't built up a strong enough support system of people that are used to me asking for help to go to. Yeah, that's such a good story you have. So you're, what you're, you're <laughs> saying is like you have to have total agreement with your circle of willing helpers before well, you can actually ask for help. No, but I mean, I think that when you're you when you learn to rely on people around you, those people learn to rely on you. And oh, there's so it, a, ha it has to be a quid pro quo. No, there, <laughs> no, no. Actually, I think I think mutually benefit. So all relationships need to be mutually beneficial, mm -hmm. right? And that doesn't mean that quid quid pro quo is like I'm going to scratch your back if you scratch mine. But in, when you're involved in emotional relationships with people, at some point, someone is giving more than taking, and at another point, someone else is giving more than taking, right? So there's that balance that happens, and I think that that's true in independence too. When you're wildly independent. 
people stop relying on you as much because you'd never ask to rely on them. Mm-hmm. And you create a little bit of a barrier between you and people. Um, and that's not good. That's actually bad. So learning how to bring more people in and lean on people more so that they lean on you and that you have that that mutually beneficial relationship with people around you, I think is really important. And I think that's probably something that I'm not good at. Um, I am really awesome at it with the like two or three people in my life that I'm closest with. And then I would say that there's a gigantic gap and then there's like a bunch of other people. That makes sense. Well, it's great that you've been able to quote unquote crack it with a few people who are your most intimate. I I think the thing that uh, also as an independent person myself, I think the thing that we sometimes skip over is that not actually asking for help is a huge ripoff to the people that love us. Right. That's right. That's right. That's how they want to cement affection with us is by helping. Yeah. And that's, that was sort of my comment on my mom is like the times when she's needed, when, when she's going through rough times and we want to like our helping her is part of our healing and dealing with it too. And a person pushes back and like, you know, doesn't, doesn't want help. It actually hurts the situation. doesn't help. So, um, I think like learning to lean on each other and learning to ask for help so people will give you help but also so they learn to ask you for help too. Like it needs to be bi-directional. So do you think you're working in sync with your purpose in this life? I think I come in and out of it. And I think when I am not in sync with my purpose, all, everything starts to go to hell quickly. What do you think your purpose is? Oh my God, that is evolving on a daily basis too. I. I don't know. I don't know if I can say that my purpose and my strength are the same thing. That's okay. So I can talk <laughs> about what I'm good at and what I'm happy doing. No, I want you to talk about your purpose. But I, no, I don't know what that is. I don't think I know what that is. That would be an awesome day if I could figure that out. I used to envy the people that were like, I knew what I wanted to do when I was 10 or 15. Um, one of uh, our partners here, Mark Solon, his daughter is into horses and she rides horses. And in high school, she was like, I want to ride horses for my whole life. This is what I want to do. And I am so envious of that. This is what I want to do forever. I don't, I don't have that. I'm curious. I always want to know what that shiny object is and what's happening over there. And so I don't know what my purpose is. It's funny too, as you talk, like thinking about purposes being aligned with something you would do instead of something you would be. I don't know that I, I think those things are the same thing. Yeah. uh, Well, I I, I push you on that a little bit because I think you represent certain things Hmm. just by existing, just by, I, I think one of the ways to get at purpose is sort of what reliably shows up when I walk into a room, what's there or what what am I doing or being when I just don't even notice time? It just falls away. Obligations fall away. I'm, but isn't that the same thing as doing? Well, it might be. I mean, you've probably, if you thought about it, encountered people that simply by being present in a certain space, and maybe they say a few words, uh, actually have a material impact on how it feels, how the group feels, how the connection is, whatever. There are people like that. And actually, I think you're actually one of those people. Interesting. Yeah. So whatever, for our next podcast, (laughs) you can think about that one. (laughs) The psychoanalysis of Nicole's purpose. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) There you go. Well, Nicole, thank you so much for joining us on Real Leaders and for everyone, in case you forgot, this is the inimitable Nicole Galeros. (laughs) 
the chief innovation officer here at Techstars. You're good for my ego. Well, I mean, if, but here's the thing. I mean, you're listening. So if you have any idea about what Nicole's purpose is, feel free to tweet at her. I think she's going to have a little more time because she doesn't have as many direct reports. I'm, Ned, I'm Nicole at Techstars.com. I would love to know what you think. There you go. Just drop her a note. She's wildly open to that. She doesn't get much email. So as always, Real Leaders Radio is brought to you by Merge Lane, the accelerator and investment fund for startups with at least one woman in leadership. We have a 2017 class coming up. Multiple women's leadership camps teed up for 2017 and the first ever leadership camp for high school girls. Check it out at MergeLane.com. Real Leaders also is sponsored by Anton Collins Mitchell, a Colorado-based audit tax and general accounting firm. Find out how ACM can help you and your company with accounting needs at ACMLLP.com. Thanks for being with us again, and we'll look forward to seeing you for the next episode of Real Leaders.